What's up, everybody? So uh, welcome to another episode of Drinks and Dogs. This is one of the first ones where we have four people on. Um, and we have the Triple Threat crew. Uh, triple threat crew. Um, all of you guys have your own individual businesses, I'm assuming, too, right, within Doctrine. And I know Nesbeth and Carlos, you guys do. And then Jay, you have one as well. Um, so one, I appreciate you guys for taking your time uh, out of your day and spending this you know, couple hours here just talking with us about dogs. Uh, and being on drinks and dogs, so I appreciate you guys. So let's go ahead and I'll cheers you guys to that. Cheers, everybody. Cheers, cheers guys. And <laughs> like Nesbeth, are you drinking a seltzer again? <laughs> Something like that. I got two drinks. Oh, I got my uh, my whiskey and Coke. Ooh. Ooh. And um, got some my my dessert. It's Canadian. I don't think you got you guys ever had one of these Caesar. Yeah. Is that tomato like tomato juice and beer? No, it's tomato. It's extra spicy. It's like a meal. It's oh. like it's like breakfast. It's like tomato juice, but it's uh, the secret ingredient is a uh, clam juice as well. Oh, it's mm. like tomato, but with like that's yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. It's pretty good. When you guys get up to Canada, we'll we'll, we'll drink some. I'm down, man. We'll, we'll we'll have a few sips of them. Um, um, so yeah, man. The triple tech crew. Um, Nesbeth, as you guys, as Mike Nesbeth said, you guys know he's an instructor on PCU and also obviously a regular on D&D, um, Jason Dog. So go ahead and break down the Triple Threat crew for us. Yeah. So um, basically, this is us. This is the Triple Threat crew. It's uh, me, Carlos Ramirez, um, and Jay Nix. Uh, we're, our, our company really is a traveling company. Uh, we put on seminars, um, you know, for law enforcement and civilian alike. And the main principle behind what we do is uh, we want to get people to not just learn or train their dogs, but understand the why, the reasons behind why they're training and, and, and how we're doing things. Uh, we find that it gives, you know, the help continues even after we're gone if they understand the principles behind the learning. Uh, so that's really what we want to do. I'll kind of let uh, Carlos and Jay introduce themselves. Um, you know they're 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 pretty good speakers. I don't like to speak on their behalf. So when you guys can take it away. All right, All right I'll start, man. So yeah, I'm Carlos Ramirez. I'm the um, owner and the one of the co-founders of Pierre Cannon. I run that with my wife Ali, and uh, we're here in Ocala, Florida, right where Jay is also. And um, we do pet training and also do some uh, police sales and training every once in a while when we can. So, um, yeah, we together also work with these guys and people through it, like they say, where we travel and just try to teach everyone and help everyone as much as we can. Awesome. Very good. Uh, my name is Jay. I am a uh, one of the owners of Triple Threat Canine. Like Carlos said, I also have a, a pet training business that I work uh, here in Ocala as well. But I, my primary job is a uh, handler and a uh, full time handler and trainer at the Marion County Sheriff's Office here in Marion County, Florida. Awesome, awesome. Before we break down like the intricacies of like, you know, triple threat and like what you're doing. So you guys travel quite a bit. Um, you know, I've obviously like, I've you know, heard you guys for a while now, um, but do you guys ever notice the learning differences between different like, like states and different people within those states? Like, so for example, like being in California over here, and I started doing seminars like in the Midwest and on the East Coast and the South and everything like that. I started noticing immediate a difference in the way that people would digest like the information and how they would retain it and how they would apply it really quickly. Like in California, literally, like 
like me and Katie have had this conversation as different where it's like, well, why don't you why why did you lay off a clicker for so long? I was like, because it's hard enough to teach people how to like hold the leash versus like hold the leash through the clicker, give their verbal marker and all this other stuff. And they want such a tight like timeline. And then I would go to Minneapolis uh, or like Atlanta where other facilities were, you know, years back and you know, the digestion, the way that they would actually like you know, process the information was so much quicker that it was just like, okay, cool, immediate immediately applied. So I was like, have you guys noticed the difference in like the people like process things, you know, throughout like the country or like the world or as far as where you guys have been working at? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, from my end, I think that it varies a lot. I think from, um, I think we all know that in different areas of the country, there's different kind of like niches, right, and pocket of trainers um, that get access to the to these departments. So sometimes you see the different access that they have, they're more eager to have, you know, to come and acquire the knowledge or so more doubtful of what you have to teach, at least in, in my personal experience. But, um, and also how long the department has been trying to better themselves versus just trying to do what they always do. Some departments are always looking forward to um, get better and, and other ones just kind of do what they always do, you know? So yeah. you, those kind of definitely group themselves and I kind of see a correlation with where the access to information they have. Yeah. Uh, going along with what Carlos said, I think, you know, for, for me traveling to different places and, and, and when we're doing different seminars, one of the, the, the first things that I like to do is kind of, you know, have a glossary of terms that we're going to use. Um, because, uh, for instance, we were, when we were training, uh, we did a seminar in Ireland and I was saying, Hey, we're trying to get the dogs to counter on their bike, right. And counter and punch in, uh, and what counter meant to them was a dog pulling. Right. So literally the same words, meaning two separate like two opposing things. Right. So I try to give like, hey, let's go through these terms as we're instructing. Uh, make sure, you know, so things are super clear to everyone. Um, that's, you know, and then on top of what Carlo said, it's definitely, you know, people that want to be in those situations and like if they're eager to be there and learn tend to pick up the information a lot faster than like the guys sometimes people are just there to kind of get a check mark and say hey i did this right yeah uh, so but i don't think generally like geographically i've seen too much of a like basis off of where i'm going it's more of like who those people are um and making sure that we give them you know the right understanding as, as instructors on our end we try to make sure that hey you guys are understanding and taking something home that we want you to take home yeah, I, I think, uh, like Mike said, I don't know as I notice as much, um, you know, the difference in people as I do the difference in maybe culture and the way things are done in certain areas. You know, like for us here in the southeast region, you know, especially when you talk about law enforcement canine handlers and the way we deploy dogs and the way we do things here is very different sometimes than it is out west. Uh, Mike Goosby, who's a super guy and one of LAPD's, you know, dog trainers, good friend, good guy. Him and I have discussions on a pretty regular basis. And I feel like Mike and I do a lot of uh, very similar styles of training, but we deploy and we operate differently uh, based on what they have out there versus what we have here. And I think that that's, you know, sometimes what we see, what we do here uh, versus what somebody does out West is very different. So then you start putting that to a practical ask, you know, aspect in training, um, then you start seeing those difficulties um, because they don't deploy the same way we may here in the Southeast versus they do out West. So yeah, I see that for sure. And then kind of, I mean, there's a lot of times like, you know, especially like our clients were mainly pet based, 
uh, and I do like to like, say like we're now uh, with pets uh, but even noticing like let's say even based on the policy and how you deploy and like the operations and the way you're doing things this is important I think for all people to know especially with everything going on is that you know depending on where you are statewide where you are agency wise each individual agency has their own almost like levels of operation like you know as far as like how they deploy what they do what they enact uh, and all those things and it's really important because a lot of times generalize that like pop work or like payment pop work you know in base like the whole united states right and that's the thing that it, it, it's really not you know it's always based on that individual agency where they're at um like you know for example like uh in california now i uh, mean carlos facetimed earlier but uh you know the the new uh uof uh course now they want to do bark and hold or bark and hold not defined by it like and that that's <laughs> something that it sounds like for us like we're laughing but that's just going to be real here <laughs> like, yeah yeah that, you know that's a, that's crazy to that i mean like and uh carl that's a good question too and, like this is a, another thing i wanted uh after you said that, i wanted to bring this up uh, was that you know what happens to all the dogs that have live bites? Like where, like, oh, how does it go? Are you gonna, or even like the fact that like, Carlos said it, like you know, they like, all right, you know, as a decoy, the dog runs up being a barking hold, you're automatically gonna be flinchy, especially when they come here. You're gonna move, so the person has no clue what the fuck they're doing. How's that barking hold gonna work? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and what are they gonna do with all those dogs? So I, I, I think. I think, you know, operationally, like here in Canada, um, our agencies kind of like each of them have their own procedures. So we'll have agencies that right up against each other, like on regional or county lines. And, you know, if, you, if a dog comes out on this side of the line, it's a bark and hold dog. And on the other side of the line, uh, it's, you know, a bite and hold dog. Yeah. Um, I, you know, we all have our opinions on on those bark and holds or or bite and holds. Um, I think ultimately, like the proof is kind of in the pudding. Like we, we, you can go to numbers and like leave that up to the the actual like people that study statistical data and and figure out what the answers are. Um, I think it's for us, it's really easy to just like, hey, we know what the answer is, right? Yeah. Let them go. And people that know, we we should be active in the process. Um, you know, as much as we can. Um, I think gen the general consensus is bite and holds are are, are safer for, you know, the, the handlers, uh, the officers, and also, you know, the suspect in that situation. Um, that's my personal opinion. Uh, and and you know, let those statisticians or whatever they're called, um, they come up. There's num the numbers are there, right? Like they can figure it out, and we move forward and adjust accordingly. It's like. Uh, years ago, there was no such thing as passive indications in detection yeah. work, right? or like, like oh, like oh, you know that passive indication stuff. Okay, well, we'll figure out. Like, the industry will kind of, you know, maybe it'll overcorrect, like it's doing in California right now. Hey, everything's bark and hold, or they plan on it, but yeah, gonna, like it'll come back and it'll bet like it'll sway, right? Like, I, yeah. I'm pretty. I don't want to name like agencies, but I think. There was all like before this is kind of going down in California. I think there's a couple of agencies out there that are bark and hold agencies already. Um, yeah, yeah. I think also is that I, some of these agencies in the past they started as a bark and hold, 
that was something that, and then they moved away from it for a reason, right? There was a reason that as training progressed and as canine deployments and everything that we learned more, like you said, statistics came in, we moved away from it. There was a reason for it. Um, and now we're just going back, right? And and I think once again, just like he said, it's because my personal opinion, I think it's because of social pressure of because of lack of understanding too. People don't don't see it. They just see the big picture, oh a dog is biting someone, that's bad. But they don't see the real big picture over, you know? Yeah. I mean, even even going back and thinking about the you know, the behavioral thought process when it comes to like the behavioral aspect of like the dog just going in to find someone who's brand new to bark and hold. Like in we have high level, like let's say the bark and hold in its highest form is like I you know, IPG or Shitson. And like mm-hmm. I was a Shitson handler what our Shitson helper sixteen years ago. Um, even at the highest level, you have, you know, Shitson three, IPO three dogs coming in into the blind and you give them a little bit over top pressure. I mean, you start to see the body language change a little bit. These are high level dogs that train this on a weekly, if not daily basis in clubs yeah. across the world to so, do this all the time and they fail. And, and, and that's to me, like, that's where that, where like it, yeah, I don't want to come here and like say the wrong things, you know, um, but to me, like that's where it gets sticky and it almost for agencies opens them up for more wrongful issues it's teaching like we know dogs notoriously don't make good decisions right we know that everyone that works with dogs knows that hey they're gonna make poor decisions that's just part of being a dog when we trust those dogs or put trust in those handlers a first-time handler that has no actual time act on like working with dogs and say hey your dogs bite someone they're not supposed to we're kind of setting them up for failure, right? Yep. And that dog, that handler is like, hey, I, yeah, go in the build. If, if there's no one that he shouldn't bite in there, he's not going to bite him. Like, it, that's how dogs work. The, the, the other thing that I think is can be challenging with it, and I don't have all the answers. Maybe in 10 years, there's going to be someone that says, hey, this is why it's better. And I don't see it happening, but maybe I'll be on that side as well, right? Um, the other thing that I think is hard enough with dogs that are genetically – um really built for this work in the first place is that first initial engagement with someone it's already hard enough so then when you start putting a lot of aversion and stopping them pretty much all the time throughout training yep. to they get on the road and and in their bark and hold policy should be having an actual bite and the dog i i find they have engagement issues because of that or, or you know um, like SAR work, like, you know, the search and rescue stuff that, you know, I've been exposed to throughout the years. I mean, what is typically the person with the search and rescue, like the actual, what are they holding? They're holding an object essentially for the dog to bark to get. Yeah. Uh, like the stuff that's happening, like whether it's a squeaky toy or whatever it is, they're expecting a reward on the end of it. And like you said, Mike, it's like, you know, even dogs who are genetically inclined to do this, you know, like even them, we watched a bunch of those. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think there's another aspect to it. Like there's the one of the dog, like you guys said, making the decision and a dog that he's everything they need within him is telling him do this because like, we all know these dogs that come from the overseas vendor or whatever, they're all trained to bite, right? They're not trained to bark and hold. So they're kind of pushing to that direction at first. And now we're giving the dog a criteria when they can do it. And like he said, they're, they're terrible at making decisions. So, and then there's the other side to it, which is the person in the receiving end of the bark and hold. We all know, like I was talking to Mike before on the FaceTime call, 
is hard enough to teach a decoy to stand still during a train and control bark and hold in a training environment. Just imagine teaching a person, a person that is nervous, scared, and doesn't understand what's happening or can't behavior in any way, and it depends on them standing still so the dog doesn't bite, or the dog is not going to bite at all. You know, like, I, it's just that's the only part to it. It is definitely somebody's going to get bit because nobody can just stand there with a dog barking at their face. That's just not a natural behavior. So, yeah, it's hard. And, and, you know, like there's a lot that we can go down this like rabbit hole with, right? Just because someone's not moving doesn't mean that someone's not a threat either, right? So um, we can do building searches and there can be someone that is armed in that room waiting for someone to come in that room, right? Yeah. Which, which has happened. There, there's plenty of, uh, of, you know, cases of, of things like this occurring. A bark and hold dog might bark and let you know someone's there, but then what? I don't know. I've never been a cop in my life, so I can't tell them how to be be an active cop. All I I'm just a dog guy and a dog behavior guy. Um, yep. That that's weird. I just I have questions that, that come with it, right? And I I need answers for that, or I would like answers for that. It's like the it's like the thing when I worked with like the DOD and everything like that. It's just like corners kill, right? So as you're clearing a room, let's see if a passive. Uh, passive, you know, in the corner, and they're passive. You have one who's loud on the side. Dog comes in, barks and holds. Co- officer comes in, obviously focuses on, you know, dog in there, but doesn't clear the corner. You know, what happens to the perp in the corner that may be armed? You know, dog, person, you know, it could be a setup, especially when people understand these things. I mean, like, there's quite a bit of, uh, you know, things to think about when we start talking about, like, this aspect of training. And for us, like for us, this is like what's what's unique about triple threat uh, and why like I'm super pumped for this COVID stuff to be over with so we can like really get on the road yeah. is like, you know, we kind of like me and Carlos never ever try to say, hey, you know, we, we're the tack guys. We got we know how you need to clear these rooms and how you need to, you know, watch the corners or, or what like we're just the dog guys. Yeah. Like our experience is on dog behavior. Um and, and we focus, really focus in on that. Jay is that kind of missing piece to the, like he's missing right now from the, from the, the live. But, um, <laughs> he, he's that piece that says, hey, like this is the actual, um, you know, application, street application, the actual, like being a police officer part of this puzzle, right? Mm-hmm. Where we, we want to be able to help as many teams as we can. And the team is the dog and the handler, right? So that's why we, we kind of made what we have right now. Um, to try and put those pieces together. Awesome. So let's go over, Ali. How, how did you guys put this together? Like, well, how did you guys come together with all this? I know, like, Desert, I've, I've talked to you about you know, the story and everything. Like, how did you guys end up? I mean, obviously, you're in Florida. Carlos, is, Carlos and Nick, or Jay are in, uh, or you, Carlos and Jay, you're in Florida, and Nezit's yeah. in Canada. How did that happen? Yeah. So I um, I'm here in Florida, and when I came back from working with Ritland, um, I came back here to to and moved right to Marin County, to Ocala, where Jay is in. You know, he's, this is for the department that he works for, and he had going a um, a handler's course at that moment that he was running, and I asked, you know, I was like, hey man, if you don't mind, if I can, I just come tag along and help in any case. You know, I'll just put on the suit and help you guys whichever way I can. So kind of from there we started and we built our relationship working. And then later on down the line, I find out that kind of my mentor was the same mentor from Michael. And after, you know, kind of through the pipe, even though we never really met down here, we've been through the same places and work with the same people. 
and can have very similar and pretty much the same working style. So, and then we all click, man. Uh, that's my opinion, you know, that's something that we all work very well together and we complement each other. And we were all wanted to be able to bring the best that we could, not just kind of do the best that we can do individually, but the best that we can to, to help departments, you know, to help teams. So I thought it, I think just kind of came together that I wanted to work with Michael. I also wanted to work with Jay and vice versa. You know, we all wanted to work with each other. I was like, you know, let's just do it. Let's pull the trigger on it. Yeah, we th you know, our, the biggest thing for us, you know, is like me, Carlos and Jay uh, individually have done like quite a few different seminars or like these conferences. Um, and, and I'll still like attend as a student, Carlos will still attend, Jay will still attend conferences. Like we try to gather all the information that we can and something like across the board that we all noticed was really missing in like whatever facet, whether detection, tracking, um, bite work, you know, building puppies, is that everyone was teaching us the methods to like, this is how I do it, but no one was taking the whys, like why we do these things or why, and like my background is in psychology originally. Um, so I've always been super fascinated with that. It's why, that's another reason why me, um, Jay and Carlos kind of just clicked immediately is because we're, all three of us are super obsessed with that that question, that one question, why are we doing this? Um, and you know, we, me, we can sit on the phone for hours. We do sit on the phone for hours just talking random training stuff. Um, and and like, oh, you know, when, when this, ha simple things, like teaching a dog a placement, we can sit there for hours talking just about that and different ways of going about teaching them that um, because we're always trying to be students and always trying to understand the why because collectively we we're so passionate about that why. Um, we want to be able to take that and give it to other people, you know, yep. civilians, law enforcement, military, whatever it, it may be, um, and let them be the ones that evaluate, you know, why they're doing things the way they're doing things um, and, and yep. what changes they can make. Yep. And we all, um, we also, we all know that whenever you go to a seminar, it's so much information, right? It's just like a complete information overload. And then you always left with the question like, man, what just happened? Like that was so much. How do I introduce it to my training? How do I take what just happened here and take it to my unit, to my department, you know, take it with me? How do I turn it into something that I can better? The holes that I found, how do I make them better? And also how I can help other people because I understand what happened. And that's what we wanted to bring. We wanted people to understand the core of why we were doing what we were doing. So they can actually take it back and apply it to them. Not just mimic what we're doing in this one scenario. We wanted to understand the why so they can take it and adapt it to move it to whatever way they need to use it, right? With all their dogs in the department, whichever way. But if you understand how it's built and why, how it works, you can adapt it, you can change it. And that's what we try to do. Just we want to be able to make sure that everybody gets that. It's not just replicate what we're doing here, understand why we're doing it, so then you can adjust it to whichever way you need it. So it's like understand the purpose as, as far as to why you're doing the work. Yep, exactly. 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 Like for me, I, I, I joke around with Nesbitt and like uh, Katie a lot about this. Like, you know, I, I can't articulate it in the way of like technical terms, but like the, for the most part, I'm like, all right, why are you doing this? Like it's very simplified in the sense of the way that we, yep. it. especially like, you know, the way that we do like our, our bite work and everything like that. So I mean, like, that's been like some really fun things. Have you, uh, so, for those of you who don't know, uh, Carlos Ramirez and actually you, uh, you were the old, you were the kennel manager of Tricos? Yeah, I was the kennel master for Tricos and the Water Dog Foundation for almost two years with Mike. 
And then what is your back, what's your background in like the, cause I, I know, obviously I know, like from talking to Matt, like uh, looking at your research, but just for people who don't know, like the background in like in dog training and everything like that you have. So um, I started training dogs kind of like for fun, um, back in Puerto Rico a little bit, but then I wanted to get some, um, some actual education on it. And that's when I attended the Tom Rose School. And then I graduated, I finished the Tom Rose School, both programs, the professional and the master's program from there. And then when I graduated, I realized I knew absolutely nothing, man. Like, I, you know, you get that master's certificate um, after 11 months of being in school, and you're a master dog trainer now. And like, and I, it, was, it was embarrassing because it was just enough to make me run my mouth to get me in bad spots, you know what I mean? But then, of course, I didn't know anything. Uh, but it was just, I, it made me want to learn more. Um, and I just really wanted to learn more. So I came back to Florida and just, you know, down there, kept working and moving, trying to find somebody to learn from. And that's when I hooked up with Wayne Dodge, um, who was happened to be local around here. And we were working kind of stand out of the same place. And we just <laughs> kind of did the normal test that he normally does before he invites you to train with him to see if he actually puts time or not. And he told me, yeah, you can come over and continue training with us. And then from there, after I apprenticed under him for a while, he hooked me up with Ridland. He was the one that told me, you know, Ridland had communicated, you know, their best friends. So him and Ridland were talking and he had told him how he needed someone to help him run the facility and kind of do some of the, obviously first and foremost, take, take care of the dogs, do all the care and clean and all of that. But then eventually start helping him train and stuff. And then when I met, I went there and met him, um, everything worked out and went great, man. And then um, the, I started working with him and obviously learning and just learning and learning and learning. Slowly I went from just kind of like the cleaning and stuff to just running all the training and doing everything for both, for trikos, for the dogs that he was selling, like personal protection and stuff like that. Also training some departments. We worked with some of the departments out in California, um, like uh, the companies of East Coast Department, stuff like that, with some training with them. And then um, also with the Water Dog Foundation, you know, rehabilitating the dogs that came from the special forces or whatever, for whatever reason, the dogs that came in, then we have to help them online and, you know, kind of let them relax, teach them that we're not going to be a cruel trainer that's going to hammer them into doing something that they don't want to do. Um, and then if they really were not adoptable, you know, if we're not really able to safely be like, hey, we're not going to be able to place these dogs safely, then we would just let them leave there. You know, it was like a sanctuary. Then we just make sure they had a good day every day of their lives, man, and just try to get them the best we could. And that really helped me a lot and shaped a lot of what I do today. Because there is that aspect of, of course, we got to make the dog warriors, right? We have to make the dogs hardcore. We have to make them not be afraid, afraid of anything. But first and foremost, don't take care of the animal. You know, that, that's first and foremost. And that's something that when I went to work with Ridland, he emphasized. I remember like the first month, I was like, all right, when are we going to train? I have my suit, I'm ready. And he's like, train, go, go, go bait the dogs. Go, go do all this stuff, right? Like all the care always came first. And if then there was time, then we'll train. But only after the dogs were all cared for. And that kind of really set what my career, I think, has been based around. And it's building the hardest and the best dogs that we can in the most humane way that, they, that are real warriors. You know, you cannot build a warrior by breaking them. That's not how it works. We have, we're, we're lucky that we have these genetics that are crazy strong men and that will push through a lot. But I have firsthand seen the dogs that come up with special forces and all of this. The ones that have been treated fairly and the right way, how strong those dogs truly are. And then the ones that just been hammered into doing something they don't want to, right? So after I was able to see that the very big difference between the two, 
I, it really helped me kind of shape everything that I do and it kind of gone this way. And then I was able to work um, after that. I came over and kind of started my own business here in Florida for a bit. And then I got a chance to go be the director of uh, the canine operations for one of the larger contractors here in the States uh, for the government and stuff like that. And I did that for close to a year. And that was really good because I was able to run the contracts for Border Patrol, DOD, TSA, um, even USDA, you know, like all those all those big contracts, I was able to run them, you know, bring them dogs and, and work with all of those guys. So that's kind of like the latest big thing. And then when I was done with all of that, I came back to Florida and just kind of took up here again and full time and just kind of going full blast now and also triple threat. That's the one that we're going. Like he said, just waiting for the, all this COVID stuff to, to stop so we can travel, man. And they can also let him back in the States because he's kind of know, right now. Locked out. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, man, but that's kind of how I go where I'm at. I, I've been doing this for like close to eight, eight, nine years or something like that. And just forever a student, man, just learning as much as I can. It's I always compare it. Do you remember? back in the day when the maps used to slowly load and start buffering, right? And like just when you go to that one spot, the rest of the map opened up. Yeah. I feel like that's exactly how it is with dog training. Just when you learn a little bit, then you realize how much you don't know. Then it really opens a whole other door that you don't, you don't know any of this stuff, you know? So that's kind of how I, I'm forever a student, man, just learning as much as I can from everyone I can. Yeah. Welcome back, Jay. Yeah, welcome back. why <laughs> <laughs> This is why I'm a cop. This is why I hunt bad guys for a living. I don't do this techie stuff, man. <laughs> so I was showing you guys. So I thought, well, let me let me try to just hook my uh, my headphones up, and then that kicked me completely out. And then I decided to switch to the MacBook. And then evidently you have to have Chrome to do this, so I had to download it. So don't <laughs> mind me. I just been over here doing all kind of bullshit waiting. Hey, but you're here now. That's all that counts. I am. I'm here now. I'm here now. And it's perfect timing. So I just talked, uh, we just basically asked Carlos, you know, um, how, because, you know, most people know Nesbitt that's on here. Did I say why yet? Yeah. I don't know, but according to this, you need to drink something. Yeah, so. <laughs> Cheers, we're drinking for that one here. <laughs> um, so going into, you know, the, you know, describing everybody who's part of this, and like that's the big thing for us in Primal Canyon. I mean, Primal Canyon University and drinks and dogs. Is exposing like the great guys like yourselves um and using that so give us a little rundown as far as um how you got started in dog training jay so uh i've been a cop for 20 years i start i was very fortunate um i work for a, a good size agency that has a very well established canine unit we've had a a, a good canine unit since the mid 70s um like a, and it's never stopped we've never had a break and having a you know pretty good size unit um, when I started working here, I knew right away that's what I wanted to do. I grew up across the street from one of the canine handlers that uh, was a handler here at the time when I first started, and I knew that's what I wanted to do. So I hit the ground running as a real young cop. Um, you know, you have to be here uh, two years to even apply for canine when a position comes open at the time, and even still now, you know, it's obviously a very coveted position, so you didn't get, uh, there was not a lot of turnover. Um, and it just so happened that worked out timing wise where I was here a year and 11 months when a handler was leaving, he got promoted and he was moving on. And I thought, crap, I'm going to miss out. But I had, I got in with some of the canine guys and sort of come into the training days and let them just beat the living piss out of me um, for months prior to this happening. So when that, that 
position posting came up and the tryout was up, I was a little shy on my time, but I had put in the work, I had put in the time and I had uh, proved myself to those guys. So they actually postponed it for another month and I was able to try out and ultimately got the spot. And I've been working the dog in one form or fashion ever since. But uh, I think really where my training, my, my trainer role started, um, I worked on patrol canine from 2002 to 2006-ish. And I was asked to go work in a uh, narcotics task force. And so when I transitioned there, it pulled me away from the only thing I knew that was canine. It's the only thing that, um, you know, I, I didn't know anything about it prior to starting there. It was just what I thought we did. Everything that we did, we thought was just the way we do things because that's what you're supposed to do it. But getting away from that unit and cycling out of myself and working in that that uh, that drug task force and handling a dog in that setting where I was really the only dog there, and then having the having access to uh, federal money and budget, I was able to get out and start training outside of my group. And when that happened, I realized, wait a minute, <laughs> we're doing a lot of stuff wrong. Um, and that that really stemmed me to start searching for the whys. Um, and everything that I did when it came to holding a leash and teaching a dog to do anything, I, I, I got to where every single task and deployment and, um, every training technique that I did, I wanted to know why we did it that way. And if, and if the why didn't make sense, then I was finding the right answer. Um, and I was finding an answer that made more sense. And I, I started just attaching myself to, um, handlers and trainers and both in private you know, the civilian world as far as um, sports stuff and, you know, pet dogs and, uh, you know, military handlers and, and just trying to figure out, uh, you know, why we're doing things the way we are doing them and why aren't we getting maybe the level of performance that I would like to see. And that really is what started my, my training career. And then I just kind of had a natural knack for getting out there and going, I mean, I see what you're saying, like, that makes sense, but why wouldn't you do this, this, or this? And then they're, well, that kind of makes sense too. And then I started putting that to work in my own dogs and dogs, uh, ultimately back at our agency, my dog started excelling tremendously and started, uh, you know, really shiny, which ultimately, um, you know, made some people go, well, what is he doing that we're not doing, you know? And so that is what pulled me back into the role. Um, when I, I, I did many years in the drug unit, working a, on a DEA task force and an HSI task force, and uh, ultimately was pulled out of there. And the sheriff uh, put me on a highway interdiction team where I ran a group of guys on an interdiction team. And then that, other people recognizing like this guy's, you know, doing something that we need to be doing within our own agency and he's helping other agencies get better and he's helping other handlers get better and other dog teams. Why aren't we capitalizing on that? And uh, that's when I was pulled back to our patrol canine team and then took over as a trainer position and then was able to really start putting that stuff into play here for our agency. Um, so, you know, uh, for me, it was, you know, just, it, it almost took me accidentally stumbling on the fact that we didn't already know everything we thought we knew. And then, you know, having a hunger and desire to get out there and chase that and get better and better at it every day I went to work. And then from there, it just, it's just snowball. And like Carlos said, you know, I just had this desire to never stop learning and anybody I could talk to and 
uh, suck information from. And I've always said, you know, I can even I can learn something from the crappiest dog trainer. I just learn what not to do, you know. Um, so, you know, I always look at things when no matter who I'm in front of or who I'm around or I can learn something new. I can learn what not to do, but I can also learn that I'm doing it right and I'm doing a good job to begin with. Um, so I try to, you know, my role as a trainer and then I've tried to instill that in other handlers at our agency because I'm not, you know, I, I definitely do not want to be around any longer than I have to be. Um, you know, in this day and age, you know, I'm ready to go. Like I've got, you know, four and a half years left and I can walk out the door and, you know, I'm ready. I'm ready to go and start challenging other teams and start challenging. But at the same time, I don't want to leave. And my guys, you know, not have that same burning desire to want to be better as well. So I'm constantly trying to, you know, push them to learn um, just like I did so that, you know, that can continue. I want, you know, 10 years from now, the trainer that's at my agency to look back and go, yeah, we used to do it this way, but now we do it even better. You know what I mean? And do it the same thing that I did. So. Um, and you, you kind of missed out on this question earlier because you're, you had technical difficulties. Um, and obviously you guys are in Florida, but, um, the, you, the new UOF over here in California is, uh, they're going to get, they're going to only use bark and hold. <laughs> <laughs> So you're asking me my opinion on bark and hold? You mean a canine handler and active in that aspect of it? Go ahead and um, give your opinion. On that. And, and it may it may not be a popular opinion, especially from guys out west. And you know, like I said, this comes down to you know a geographic thing, and things happen differently out west. And you know, I've had multiple. So I'm going to preface this with this. So I'm going to try not to hurt you know too many people's feelings with my opinion on this. But ultimately, you know, a lot of the stuff that you're seeing that, you know, on news and, you know, agencies are dealing with and defund the police. And I was talking to Jeff Meyer from, you know, Colorado, who's a handler out there and uh, a trainer. And him and I were having a you know, great discussion over the phone. And he was telling me some of the crap they were having to deal with. Um, and I get why, you know, some of that stuff's happening. Some of these changes are being made. But I think it's just garbage. I think it's complete bull crap. Um, I think we have a, a duty and a responsibility that we are tasked to go put some bad people and hold them accountable, put them in jail, hold them accountable for the actions. You can't do that by pandering to them. You can't do that by, you know, being sweet and, you know, gentle and kind. Um, you know, I grew up in a, in a mindset of you deal with violence with violence. You know, you, you know, there's a lot of people that live in my community that, you know, the only way they understand you speaking to them is if you're talking to them like their parents talked to them growing up. You know, you're cussing at them, carrying on yet, you know, tell, talking to them the way they, they, that's the way they speak. You know, it's not a matter of, oh, I need to be kind and gentle. Look, I'm all about being respectful. Carlos and Michael tell you, I feel like I'm a very respectful person. I'm a respectful person of other people's opinions. But the bottom line is my job is not to go out and make people feel good about themselves. My job is to go out and hold people accountable for their actions. And my job is to do it effectively really well. And I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of real live teeth on human flesh, breaking bones, putting bad guys in jail. My dog right now, he's laying on the floor. Um, he's my fourth work dog in 18 years. I have put a ton of bad, bad, dudes in jail i don't do that with 
empty threats. If I tell you to do something and you choose not to do it, that's not my fault. You're done. Like the, 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 the agency give me this dog to smoke you if you don't listen. It's real simple. So to me, bark and hold is just another empty threat. You know what I mean? Like if, if I'm having to send my dog to you to get that close to you, to make you bark, to bark, him to bark at you, to give you that one more chance, to me, you've already had your chance. You had your chance when the officer told you to stop. Now, now you're going to send your dog and expect your dog to fight that urge to this guy who's not already, already proven to us that he's not going to listen. He's already going to follow any commands. And now you're expecting him to hold real, real still so that your dog doesn't engage him. I mean, every bark and hold dog you see in the sport training world and then training, what are the decoys doing? Absolutely nothing. They're perfectly still. They're perfectly quiet. I, I don't know about you guys. I mean, you know, I know Mike and Carlos not a cop. I don't know what, you know, what your history is, but I've never met a bad guy that I'm putting a dog on that's able to or willing to stay still and be quiet ever, like ever uh, in all my bites. So uh, matter of fact, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, we don't, you know, bad man, stop fighting my dog, stand still, and the decoy goes completely silent and quiet, and then I remove my dog on a verbal out. No, we still scream bloody murder, we still lose our minds, we still flail around, and the dog should still out. And we do that because that's what real bad guys do. They don't lock up and stand there and don't make eye contact with the dog. And the reason we're putting a dog on a person to begin with is because they're not complying. Period. Why do we bite people? Pain compliance. It's just supposed to hurt. Like that's I, I want it to hurt. I want you to remember, like two days later, when you're stumbling around your jail cell, I want you to go, I should have listened. Like that hurt. I, I want you to remember that the next time you get ready to go run. So my opinion on bark and hold is I think it's great for sporting. It shows a lot of control. It should but listen, we have a we have a job to do, and that's hold people accountable for their actions. And if we've given you, and I'm listen, I'm not the kind of guy that thinks every you know bad guy that we track should get bit. You know, I, I think people. I, I tell people all the time, look, I get why you ran. You were scared. If I was in your situation, I've been scared too. You've been to jail before. This time you're going to prison, and you know it. I get it. It's a game. You decided to run, but once you ran, and once I told you to stop, and you chose not to, you're not getting a second chance. You know, if I send my dog into a building, when he finds you, he's going to bite you. There's not a question. Yeah. But that's not because I just drove up, got my car out and threw him in the building. I gave you a chance. I gave you very clear, loud instructions on what to do. You made a choice. So what follows is an, as a result of your choice. So why would I send my dog to bark at a person to maybe give them one more choice? And I, I, I don't know. I mean, I know there's going to be guys out there and handlers and trainers that are going, oh, that's bull crap. You know, that's just lack of control. And it's not about control. I have tons of control. These guys can tell you. But I want my dog to do exactly what I trained him to do. And that's increase the pain so high that there's no other way your brain can function. Like, you can't think to reach in your pocket and grab a gun. You can't think to fight anymore because the pain level is so high that your brain has shut down and now I can physically make you do what I want you to do. We don't take our dogs off until people are handcuffed. I, I hear, you know, agencies all the time, like, holy cow, like you guys don't take your dogs off until, no, 
because if I take my dog off, the pain compliance went down and you can make a choice. You've already made your choice. I'm not giving you another opportunity to make another. So when the handcuffs go on, the dog comes off. It's a real simple thing. And we do it across the board. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the, you know, pain compliance is one of the major things I try to explain to a lot of people, especially when it comes to like law enforcement and the way, you know, personal protection as well, because we sell mostly, especially in California, um, with all our loose gun laws, <laughs> or our weak gun laws, we sell quite a bit of, who has a little one? Who has a little dog? Yeah, it's mine. There's a little wiener dog in the background running this household. That, that, that's the dog he was talking about that's getting all yeah, the guys. Yeah, yeah, that's the... Yeah, that she's killer. convinced that she, she's running this household, I promise you. Yeah, but that's like, you know, pain compliance is one of the biggest things, you know, learning how to learning how to teach a dog to counter properly. And like Mike, you said that as well. Um, and, you know, learning how a dog to dig and deep and break bones. And, you know, basically, like you said, you like shut the brain off. Like, fuck, that hurts. I need to mm-hmm. be done. But, you know, it's always, you know, obviously it's a last minute, it's a last minute thing for them. Um, going into this, uh, I, you've never had any, you don't have any support. Um, background do you me uh i started in as a training decoy for like a french ring club in south florida um i never competed in french ring i just like to work the dogs like decoy um, Wait, you so you in florida? yeah i lived in south florida or carlos when i was in florida. when i moved away then i then i uh, met jay and carlos <laughs> but yeah i started same place. Like we met, we learned from the same guy. We went through the same kennel, but just different times. Yeah, I used to drive up from South Florida to Ocala, where they're at uh, at this kennel, um, to to like train and work dogs. It was like one of the only places that would let me like work dogs with them. Um, and I was there. Then I left, and like right after I left, Carlos came in there. So we kind of just missed each. Like literally, probably like a month after I left, Carlos like cycled through and like came in there. So yeah. Do you have any decoy experience within sport, or are you just mostly all law enforcement? Me? Yeah. Sorry, I was having a hard time hearing you. No, it's it's all law enforcement. And then Carlos, you're um, were you in sport at all? At all? No, man. I've never done anything with sports, and we do have a group that we do white work with that people that do sports with their dog. You know, they come over, but we don't practice anything specific for sports. I just tell people that I teach their dogs how to bite better. Whatever they use the dog to bite, that's up to them. You know, it's, I, I don't care. Um, so we have sometimes law enforcement guys show up, uh, some people with their personal dogs. I mean, uh, around here, like, they will tell you, we have some dogs that are really good that are owned by private people. And I mean really good dogs that are owned by, yeah. like, uh, that are pets, basically. And so whenever we put a group together, we get a very nice group of law enforcement and private dogs. And man, we, we have a lot of fun. But there's no sport in it at all. That we have a building that we get to play in. And like it's just an empty building, like a warehouse. And it's just, find me, you know, let's fight kind of thing. Yeah. At, at our, at, at our uh, seminars, though, we do. So one thing, like across the board, uh, we all agree on, like a strong foundation is a strong foundation, right? So w- wherever you choose to go with that it is where you choose to go with that. So we have like Carlos, me, Jay at seminars, um, even our training group here, like we have people that are, you know, aiming to compete in IPO, IGP, uh, PSA, French ring, like all of that stuff. Then we have some law enforcement, personal, like whatever we're, as long as we're building, 
we don't train specific like routine like hey 50 paces this way then a left turn and 30 paces. we're just like no if your dog's trained and understands what the training if your dog knows how to bite and knows how to out we don't need to work on a routine specifically you just want your dog to know these behaviors and you do what you want to do with your dog after does that make sense yeah, no, so actually that's why I asked you guys. So I remember uh, one of like, the first New York seminars I did like three or four years ago. Um, and I work a lot of like groundwork with dogs, building grips, having them punch in, only responding to them, actually digging, like marking that, using muscle flexion when they bite, mm-hmm. you counter, you do all these things like with your arm. And I remember talking to these guys, because all high level PSA guys. And I just was like, all right, I was like, so you do know the longer I work your dog, your dog's going to want to just completely just like, be going to be stuck in a little more so that your out may not be as clean as you yeah. want at the sport. Absolutely. So my, my big, I remember walking into the first day of like, I did a behavioral part for the first like six hours. I'm like, all right, cool. I got a three hour break. And I walked in, I'm like, fuck, man, I don't want to, I don't want to ruin these guys out. But that's true, man. You've seen, we, we've seen, you know, like I've went and helped at a couple different sport clubs in this area in Jack. Jacksonville and South there's nothing like that. And you know, I've seen some dogs that look fantastic on a sport field. And then you get them out of that element and they are garbage. You know, uh, but like Carlos was saying, we've got some people around here that have some phenomenal dogs that have done a really good job with the foundation. They could go out and just dominate in the sport world. Um, but there's a lot of sport dogs, man. You you get them out of that routine because and I think that's the problem that so many people are Training dogs are routine versus training dogs to do exactly. the work. Yeah. Yeah. I think people lose the, the, the scope of like wanting IGP or PSA, whatever, when they tell you, you know, like Michael said, do the 50 paces and left turn. I think people lose the, the sight that that is to see how good your dog can heal, not how good, how good your dog can follow a routine. Right. So if your dog knows how to heal, if it's 50, 60, 70 paces, I'll heal. You tell me when to left, when to turn to left, right? Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. kind of what we try to do. But um, we let everybody can do whatever they want, right? We don't. Yeah, like we don't to, to me, yeah, to right? me for, for a dog to be like super, like to me, it's more impressive to have a dog that hasn't trained for a sport specifically, and in the same season can say, "Hey, I'm going to show up to French a French ring trial today, mm-hmm. and see how I, how my dog does." Oh, next weekend mm-hmm. there's a PSA trial. This I'm gonna show up. I'm gonna see how they do. I'm gonna oh IGP and just show up. If you get a dog that's titled across the board, and even it can be entry level, you know BHs, level ones in all of those sports. To me, I'm like, wow, you really did train your dog. Like your dog's not just yeah. going through the the paces and knows what it is. Yeah. Your dog knows to heal when you tell it to heal. Your dog knows to lay down when you tell it to down, and your dog knows to bite when you tell it to bite. Mm-hmm. Those things, like regardless of what the situation may be, I mean, it kind of it goes back to that bark and hold stuff. In that, you know, we see these dogs that are in IGP, really, really good dogs. Um, in, in an ideal situation to maintain a bark and hold on a field with a decoy that's certified and knows what he's doing, um, and still get dirty and still make mistakes and, and bite that decoy that knows what he's doing in that ideal field with nothing else going on, no fear hormones and pheromones out in the air nothing and they can still get dirty so you know it, it goes back to like well you work um what's in uh instagram name uh brent uh kick ass yep 
you were you were you just recently worked that dog, didn't you? Yeah. And she's or that dog's cross trained in two different sports, isn't it? Yeah, he does. IGP is like his main sport uh, that he does with her, uh, and he'll every now and then like he'll take her and put her out on this like just on the suit for fun. She'll target the bicep, um, but she's like a fun little dog as well. You know, it's but like to me that's. Maybe it's because I'm my brain is all over the place, but like just training for this one sport um, and, and doing that routine, I'm not against sports at all. Like I think they're they're awesome, but just like for me personally, it doesn't work. Like I, I don't want to just lock in and say, "Hey, I'm going to work on this hundred pace heel at right. this speed right now." Like, just teach the dog to heel. Doesn't matter if I go a hundred paces, twenty paces, or a thousand paces. Whatever speed I'm doing, I want you to heal with me. Well, and like that, that breaks down into like behavioral things and like you know, classical conditioning, like however dogs, you know, you know, being extremely associative based dogs. And when you class, when you condition like a routine, the dogs follow that routine specifically. You know, right. we, and then you get outside of that routine, and then what? Then boom, like you know, yeah. that was a lot of we got into, um, you know, experimental canine years ago. Uh, was that you know, we practiced on like a concrete, like and then we had like slippery surfaces and we had a field and you know a lot of times it's like well you know it's not the similar thing you know there's like the dog pads are gonna get rough i was like well we, we're not training like you know shits in our eye at that time it was ipo dogs it was, like we're training dogs to work in every and any environment energy real world experience possible you know and that's yeah. the most important thing is that no matter if i walk five feet and tell them see to blast or whatever we're not using or whatever you know, language i'm using they're going to listen to that no matter what environment we're in and no matter what we're doing, whether we're biting or what we're not biting or we're just, you know, blocking in general, you know, that was like one of the things that we, we, we loved the best about being in the park that we were in San Jose, um, considering it was such a, you know, dynamic environment. Um, but like a lot of people were like, well, you know, it's not on the field. They're not doing that. The, the standing motion was not the greatest. The, this was like, well, there's a fucking pothole, like a. He was stepping away from the broken glass. That's the difference between control and a routine. Yeah. You know, it's, I, 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 it, it blows my mind how many times uh, like, I asked, you know, handlers, especially young handlers, or even shockingly, even some senior handlers, you know, what does outing and recalling fall under, you know, in the categories of dog training and they never fails. They'll say man work. You know what I mean? When the, the truth is it's control. It's, it's obedience. You know, out, outing is obedience. Mm -hmm. Simple as that. Recalling it's obedience. You know, it's no different than telling your dog to sit. You tell the dog to let go. He, sh he should let go. You tell your dog to bite. He should attach a hold. But that's the difference in guys getting so focused on routines um, it blows my mind. My own agency, there's one of those things I was talking about when I slipped away from our patrol unit, went to that, uh, went to work in a dog in a task force. And I'll never forget, you know, I taught my dog how to out doing bite work. Yeah. And then later on, you know, as I grew in my maturity and, and understanding of how training works, and I realized, what in the world am I doing? Like, wh why would I, you know, but still the, to this day, so many canine schools are run. They teach dogs how to out and during the bite work. Yeah. You know, same thing with recall. You're getting ready to recall, and they want to get out there on the field with a guy in the sleeve. Like, like, why would you jack? You know, put the dog in this most jacked state of mind 
and they try to teach this dog anything. Like, why don't you use a toy and teach him out and then recall of it? You know, I'll, it just baggles me. But I think that's the genuine difference between, you know, control and teaching a dog a routine. So, and it's the same. We see it all the time in law enforcement. You see guys yeah, for certain sweat. Just, Sweat certifications. Yeah. And I had a conversation not too long ago with a young handler, and I said, you're, you're out here, you know, preparing to take on bad guys, and you're sweating certification? Like, what is certification? It literally is somebody saying, this is the minimum standard that I need you to do so that you can go hunt bad guys for a living. And you're sweating that? Mm -hmm. it's, it's the most purest form. Like, it's so – it's the, but handlers all the time they stress that they sweat certification. Control work is control work. You know, routines are routine. If you get out there and you teach your dog a routine, you're gonna you're gonna mess it up. Yeah. But if you get out and teach your dog control, I don't care what environment you put that dog in, he's gonna be under control. Yeah. Yeah. And then so a follow-up question that's like so the many dogs as we get in, um, and I know you guys build more heavily in law enforcement. How many dogs are you guys watching out that can actually have that clarity? Um, especially, I mean, all, all you guys know, dog bites, especially if you're using you know, proper techniques, reinforcing muscle flexion, all these things, you know, pain compliance, building all that stuff. When a dog actually starts to feel somebody within a lower, like, lower um, level, like, sleeve, you know, if you're using, you know, super thin, you know, Kevlar, if you're using super thin Endura, if you're using special fabric, uh, or if a dog gets a live bite in general, what are you guys experiencing um, when it comes to the dogs outing, especially you know, like for us, for example, we deal with uh, tons of like personal protection dogs and just, you know, dogs who are transitioning for sport into, you know, more realistic scenarios, especially times being what they are, you know, that once they start feeling like either you have dogs who once they start feeling like the muscles and the stuff move, they're like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> and they're like, they're, you know, that's kind of weird. And they pull out or dogs are like, Oh, I want more of that, and they start digging and getting hard, like you know, getting harder on the grips. Um, what is, what are your guys' experiences with that? Like, how are you guys uh, adapting and you know, kind of moving through that? Well, before these two start talking, I'll say I'm super fortunate because I don't have to deal with that. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I don't, I'm not I'm not selling anybody's dog. Somebody gives me a big check, and I go over to a nice vendor and I pick out the best of the best, and I come home, so I don't have to deal with that. But these two, I know deal with it, so I'll let them deal with that. I think. Um, I think that it comes down, that's part of our selection, right? That we, I'm, we don't go test the dog with um, just training scenarios. We just go test them in, I want to see what the raw material is, right? So whenever we're doing the testing, we definitely want the dog that's forward. And, that, and that's one of the things actually that I learned a ton from, from Jay is that how critical selection is. I think everybody knows how successful the Marion County Canaan is. Uh, everybody knows about Marion County Canaan. If you go on Facebook, they're everywhere. And one of the first things, like where, let's say that Jay says, hey, we're getting a new handler, we need to get a new dog. It all begins with finding the right dog. Like, it just, it's that simple. So that's the critical part is that testing. And if I notice any kind of hesitation when the dog feels off, like that's why we try to use the smallest equipment possible, the smallest tube, hidden sleeve, or prosthetics. But anything, anytime that I see any kind of hesitation, to aggress the person that's presenting an actual threat to them during testing or whatever, it's, it's, no, it's a no-go, right? That's just, I won't even take the dog in. And uh, like Michael and I, we both, we have a bunch of contracts right now, we're trying to fulfill. We're testing a bunch of dogs, but it's, that's a very big, you know, 
big criteria. Anytime that there's any kind of hesitation on pause, they just want to mess with equipment. That's a just no go. I don't want to even waste my time with that. And it's just because of that. I want to start with the best raw material we can. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, obviously it would be age dependent um, uh, on how far we, you know, testing that dog's kind of like what he really means. What I, ideally for me, what I like to see um, is when that dog actually feels me or, you know, if a dog has never been on the suit and they actually like feel me for the first time under that suit, I want to see bite work start to mean a little bit more to them now. Like, I, I want to see it be like, oh, this is what we've been preparing for. Like, oh, this, like, kind of give them some meaning in life, you know? Uh, and I'm sure Jay can probably attest to this, not me hands-on uh, with the dog on the road, but I've worked dogs that have, uh, you know, hadn't had their first bite yet one week. They go out that week, they get their first bike and bite, and then we train them the following weekend, and it's like a brand-new dog. Mm -hmm. yeah. Balls of drops. He has more purpose. Mm -hmm. It tracks better. His detection work is better. His obedience is sharp. He just has meaning now in his life, right? So, like, for that to happen, we have to have the right dog from that, yeah. from, you know, selection. Um, we have to know that, hey, when he actually gets that, everything is going to be golden, right? Um, so, yeah, that, that's kind of what I would say on that. Right. You're, you're, you're so right. You know, for us, you know, we, me personally, I have developed you know, my selection process over the years, but it has, um, it's changed and it's, it's, it's strengthened, but it has proved that it's working time and time again. You know, Carlos has been around and he's actually went with me when, you know, I've tested out dogs and, um, you know, how I go through the process. And, and I think it's something that's, you know, I feel like it's, it's something that's pretty standard industry, uh, industry standard, but I'm learning, you know, especially working with Canons United and helping teams all over the country. I'm learning real fast. That's not the case. And, you know, but like he said, you know, the, that's where it all starts, you know, the, the foundation. And I think the last, I think, I'm, I think we're up to 24 dogs in a row that we've went and that have had loads of success where we've not had one dog wash out of our program in the last 24 dogs that we purchased, you know, for our agency and a couple of little smaller agencies around us. Um, and I, I completely attest that to the selection process because you and I both know, you know, these dogs are all coming from, you know, similar, if not the same vendors overseas and then they're getting here. Um, and it's, you know, but I think that's important building relationships with good vendors like yourself that, you know, you know what I'm looking for when I get there. And then when I go through the process and by the time we wash the dog, you know, by the time we, we wash out the garbage and we're ready to pick a dog at the end of the day, you know, we're taking dog and dog that I don't have to worry about what the warranty is on it because I know for a fact it's going to work. Um, not based on, you know, they're saying it's going to work, but there's so many agencies out there that don't have that. And Carlos and I have run across that many, many times. And I was just helping an agency up in North Carolina right now that went and got a, a dog from a vendor and she started talking about these problems that she's having. And then when I started really interviewing her and, and breaking down what the problems are with the dog, I quickly realized she went to a vendor and it's a well-known vendor and I won't say the name, but they went there and they saw, you know, I got, this is how I can take this dog that I've been not been able to place and I can place. It. And, um, and it's sad, but you know, these vendors are in for a business. And I, and I think these law enforcement, law enforcement agencies need to do a better job of understanding about this selection process 
there's so many resources out there, but one of the worst things about law enforcement canine is they're too damn proud to ask for help. Yeah, and definitely. You know, on on kind of touching on what Jay is saying, um, for me and, and Carlos as well, uh, because we're in similar situations, you know, because we don't have kennel buildings that have 100 kennels in it, um, it also gives us the ability, uh, one, on the selection time, if it's not dogs that we've bred, to be a lot more selective with what we can even keep. We don't have the space to keep dogs and we're like, hey, no, this might not make it or this might not do too well. Um, and outside of just that, because we're smaller vendors, we actually like know our dogs, right? They're not mm -hmm. like dog in kennel 20. Don't get like, there's, there's absolutely the need for those bigger vendors, those huge vendors to be there to supply dogs that, that you know, there's an abundance of dogs with us personally. Um, and like, we've had options to grow our capacity much more, like make it much larger. But to me and what I want to do with what Carlos wants to do, um, it, keeping it at a manageable size where I know each dog, per, I'm called, I know the dog by its name. I'm, hey, yeah, this dog, I, I don't need to go look at sheets and, and passports to figure out when this dog came here or when what this dog's birthday is or where he's from. You know, knowing each dog, knowing their strengths and knowing their weaknesses. The other thing that we have to do is like be realistic um, and say, hey, they're going to have weaknesses. Identify what the weaknesses is are that we're willing to work with and what weaknesses we're not willing to work with um, because they're going to be there in any dog, right? Um, so th th I think that that's an important part, point as well. Yeah. And it comes down to the, like I was saying earlier, right? Like he said, we have limited space, but so the quality and the care that we can provide for these dogs. Is also, you know, very big, uh, big difference. Like you're not gonna get a dog that smells like death that's been sitting in a kennel for 20 days or whatever. You know, these dogs are here with us. We, we deal with them every day. They're cared for. They're they're treated very well, and, and we only have space for the very good chosen few. You know, so that's that's what we can that's what we can house. And but like he said, there's there's need for these big vendors. Like when I was working with a large vendor, when DOD shows up and they tells you I need 46 dogs. And, you know, like there's no way I can. I don't even know someone that has 46 dogs right now. <laughs> help me out, you know. So much like 46 good ones. Yeah, so there's a need for that. And and but Jay hit a. I think he hit a the nail on the head with you have to develop a relationship with these vendors. Um, is you know like Jeremy has a great relationship with his vendor, and like even though that I sell dogs, he go, he buys his dogs from this vendor that he's been buying them for however long, and he's successful. They have a great relationship. And that's why, because he's putting the time, he's built the rapport, he's built the relationship. And once you do that, then there's a different, you know, relationship with the vendors. But um, definitely we keep it a little bit smaller and more exclusive and stuff like that, where you're more um, hand-touched, I feel like, you know, more custom, uh, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Are you guys doing any breeding at your place at Prime? We do once a year. Um, and I usually kind of, it's all select, usually it's private. Um, I have, right now, in the last years, we've developed, you know, two or three breedings of, like, pretty, some pretty nice dogs. You know, the first one, um, when I decided to open it up, uh, in general, was the dog Mozzie that we have now. I'm not sure if you guys saw him on Instagram or anything like that, or social media. Um, but he's from Devil and everybody, um, Devil and the dog we had in-house named Six. Um, we just procured a couple of different things that we're going to do now with the next, with the next year. Um, but ideally, we we keep it small. I mean, it's, it's 
it's a quality of a quantity, you know, especially for us. Like I for sure. Like, yeah, yeah, we're not a similar situation to you know Jessica and Carlos. Um, is it, you know it's kind of you know we we live in California, so like California, we're on top of each other all day long. Uh, so right. there's you can't really have a bunch of I can't have a hundred uh, channels. We tried to do it. We got a facility, but it didn't work out that way. Um, for all these dogs, especially you know, the funny thing is, you know, Carlos said he's like the beauty is he's like twenty seven dogs. That was literally the first my first introduction, my first was my second was for Dave uh, five years ago was like, Hey, I gotta call uh I need to come out and test uh forty six dogs like, for the DOD. And like that was like one of the first calls I got into like going into business world. Um and I just remember going out and like shit. <laughs> okay, cool. Basically um I picked four. Like that's pretty much how I would do after testing a hundred. Something like that yeah. was it, but like that's yeah. really what we've been doing, and that's why we've been doing the small batch breeding that we've been doing uh, within Primal Canine is to make sure each breeding is selected, each dog comes out, it's going to be the, doing what it should be doing, and not yeah. the best dogs. But you know, we have our relationships with the, you know, specific vendors and breeders uh, for dogs that have been providing us the great, you know, great stuff so far. But we're, we're you know, I'm, I'm extremely I'm very anal when it comes to the dogs that come in that will represent what we put out. So when I have no problem sending dogs back really quickly or just you know, not even taking the dog in certain things. Like for me, I I do single purpose specifically. It's only control, it's only apprehension. I don't I don't mess with the dual purpose stuff too much because my my narcotics is very rudimentary. So I try to stay more on the dogs that are gonna They listen versus uh, the other uh, the other members of the dog culture. Plus, you know, just uh, no like no like working with that. So we focus on really specific on certain things that we've been doing over a long uh, long time now. So breeding, uh, yeah, breeding's been really fun. (laughs) Well, the problem is, you know, you you don't want to pass up on good genetics when you have them. You don't want to lose that, waste it. But at the same time, it's such a huge commitment, you know, especially if you're selling personal protection dog. Nobody's buying a, you know, an eight month old, I mean, eight week old you know, personal protection dog. Nope. Um, you know, so you then you've got to sit on those puppies for a year, year and a half to develop them. And it's a lot of time, effort and energy when you can just go out and spend a little extra money, but buy a dog and, you know, turnkey and get them ready to go. But then again, you know, like you said, you've got to have that special dog. And, you know, like it's baffling to me. I was just talking to an agency not too long ago and me and Carlos were both blown away with the statement um they went to a vendor specifically to buy a police dog and they said they spent two days and looked at 26 dogs before they found the right one and that was mind-boggling to me like it, it and then and then to make matters worse the dog that they brought home was garbage <laughs> oh, to, to, to evaluate and we were just like like this is wait a minute you're saying this is what you picked out of 26 over a two-day period and, and this is what you brought home. Like I would hate to see one through twenty-five. If this is what you brought home, <laughs> the one that made it. Want one through twenty-five. And yeah. again, another big name vendor. But like it, it's it's baffling to me. But you know, like I recently went and bought two, and you know, I called them ahead of time and said, "Look, you know, I'm going to need two dogs in three to four weeks. You know exactly what I'm looking for. I don't have to explain this to you. I'll see you in three to four weeks." And I get there, and they're like, "We got five for you to look at. Perfect." And at the end of the day, out of the three that I would have gladly taken home, it came down to which one looks better because they all did phenomenal in the testing. 
but it, it's baffling to me that there are vendors here in the U.S. that are importing dogs that an agency can go to, and it takes them 25. You know, these are all dual-purpose prospects, and you said you spent two days looking at I would go crazy. Like, yeah. I, I would never go back to the vendor again, ever, period. Like, that's just mind-boggling to me. Yeah. I'm again, and most of that vendor has three, uh, three letter uh, initials. That's typically. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about, bro. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, hardest, hard, hard, hardest, hard, uh, dog getting contest or whatever that's called. I don't know what you're talking about, bro. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Which is like almost in the bad world, so okay. Yeah. Uh, so uh, another question I have, or another you know, topic we talk about in question is, and this is something I feel like it's really important, especially for people who are in law enforcement who may not be in the Sorry, we're, we're running a, a ship here. Uh, so another question I had for you guys is, and this is really important, especially like on our side, like I always stress the importance of like a of decoy work, you know, so decoy work a lot, especially when we work with agencies who are underfunding their canine program, is they don't necessarily like it's literally same officer on the same patrol, same thing, putting the suit on, working with them in that training scenario, uh, and just getting nailed by the dog. There's no actual movement going on, over here. Um, and like you know, there's people who don't really know what's going on, they just see what they see and they go from there. So in your guys' experiences, especially the amount you guys travel, the amount you guys do, the amount of work you guys have done, because you guys have, how important is having a skilled decoy on any I would think Jay has no. <laughs> like that's a that's a very sensitive subject for me because again, I, I grew up, you know, in a very old school unit and as a young, young officer. And um, I, I didn't know any better. You know, we did things like we did because I thought that's what we were supposed to do. Um, and it, it took me, like I said, striking out on my own. But we, again, I'm going to go back to we are tasked and we are, you know, with going out hunting these guys that just have nothing to lose. And they are, um, you know, they, they, are, they have no desire to cooperate with you whatsoever. Um, and we're they're completely unpredictable but then we have this super generic routine decoy work you know we, we we get a guy wearing a half a uniform he just took his gun belt off he's standing out in the middle of a field you know 60 feet away uh wearing a you know giant barrel shits and sleeve and we're shouting generic warnings as he's you know robotically moving around and then we send our dog which you know I, I'm not, you know, these guys will tell you, I don't know how you feel about these things, but I'm not a big fan of long sins. Um, but, you know, and then it's, you know, just garbage, you know, feedback for the dog. Um, and, and, and I'm not talking about what we see, what I saw 20 years ago. I, you know, I just recently went and helped an agency and that's exactly what I saw then. There's a guy out there wearing a shits and sleeve with his gun belt on um, and his 5'11 pants and his cool guy t-shirt. And, you know, they're out there just, they're not, they're not doing any training, you know, and then they wonder why they're having these fail to engage, you know, constantly, you know, there's so many cops in this country that if, if they were honest and they weren't, you know, prideful as hell, that they would tell you that they have loads and loads of failed engagements. Well, that's, that's a hundred percent on you 
And, and I, I, I equate that stuff directly back to decoy. Um, you know, we have, we have a responsibility to show that dog exactly what it's going to see when it hits the street. Um, and then we have to show them the stuff that we're not expecting for. I have bit, I have long line bit a dead human being. And there's, I can't go to the morgue and drag, you know, corpse out of there and ask them to let us use it for dog training. So we have to be able to, but I've had to do it before. Um, you know, thinking that, but we have people play possum all the time, but you know, but then when you will do these decoy seminars and we'll put a, put a dog, put a, a decoy in a suit laying completely passive on the ground with zero feedback and the dogs won't engage, even wearing a suit or they'll go up and nip and move around and all this kind of stuff. You know, I think the most valuable trainer that a dog has is the guy in the decoy end of it, period. Like that's, you know, for a police dog specifically, you know, we can work on obedience and control work and that stuff's super important. But the truth of the matter is obedience for me is nothing more than liability protection. That's it. Okay. I don't, I've never in my 18 years of handling dogs on the streets have I ever healed my dog, you know, focused healed out and, 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 and on the, on, in the hood ever. ever. As a matter of fact, I want him looking like a chainsaw or a dirt bike on the end of a leash while we're walking around. I've never healed my dog in those situations. We put a lot of emphasis on obedience and stuff like that because it's about liability for us. You know what I mean? We chase people that run across interstates. I want to be able to stop my dog, put him in a down before he crosses that interstate because, you know, I want his, you know, overall desire to just not care about the semi that could possibly run him over. But the truth of the matter is, you know, obedience is important, but it's about liability. Um, and I think that hunting and uh, and, and biting is, is the real deal when it comes to police work. And I think the only person that can really get, you know, only trainer that can get your dog ready to do that in the real world is the decoy. So for me, decoying is, is, is the name of the game when you're trying to get a dog ready for the street. So it's, it's invaluable to me. And to do it right um, and showing those dogs the complete and total picture. Um, today, for example, we got two guys that have recently retired dogs and they put new dogs uh, in the works, and I was working the road today. Uh, I just come hopping in the house right before I got here. That's why I'm still wearing my uniform. But, um, but I keep a pair, a change of clothes in my car, and I keep a pair of tennis shoes in my car. And I had no plans to decoy today, um, but I got out and decoyed doing some proofing stuff with a rubber arm. But before I did that, I took off my uniform, I took off my pants, I took off my shirt, I stripped down, put on my ratty shorts and t-shirt and a pair of crappy tennis shoes, and then I went out and did that stuff. Um, you know, I'm not a fan of, you know, guys decoying in uniform. And I, I think it's, you know, it's, I think it's garbage. And, um, but man, I'm telling you, you, you want to be blown away, go to a nap water workshop and watch how some of this stuff happens. It, it, it's, I don't know, man, I, to me personally, I'm ashamed at how so far behind sometimes that law enforcement is when we are in so advanced in so many other areas. And then we are so, so far behind the time sometimes. And when it comes to dog training, we, we have these dogs that are, you know, buku bucks and they're out here trying, we, we expect so much out of them, but we're not willing to give them truly what they need in return to be super successful. I think it's crap. I think that's, that's one of the main, um, the common denominators that you see when you see successful departments in, in, in their deployments and stuff like that. There's someone in there that's putting the food. 
there's someone in there that knows what they're doing. It might be another handler, it might be a trainer that's building the work with them or something. But there's someone that most of the time that knows what they're doing. And um, that's something that I'm I'm super against and I always said it. And I, I hate the whole mentality of just to find who's dumb enough to put on a suit and stand out there and like get them hammered or they just find a new guy and just send them out there and get them hammered. But um, you know, it, it has to be someone with skill and, and coming from both of us, you know, that we're, we're decoys and that I know Michael and I kind of share the same passion on it in the sense of, like, man, we live this. You know, every time I jump on that suit, I live it. Like, to the point that whenever I, I have to play the bad guy and I have to get on that, like, negative mentality to really show the dog, a, a, you know, a strong picture, man, it affects me. Like, I'm in a bad mood for a little bit, you know, and it's not just, like, it's a game. It's not something that I'm just doing to be cool or whatever. It's something that I really live it. I, you know, I when I'm upset, when I let a dog bite me and I scream in pain, the dog is really putting pain into me, you know. And, and I really try to do that because that's what happens. You know, I get privileged that I get to see a lot of the uh, deployment videos, right? The, the body cameras that kind of gives us an insight of what happens during a fight. I mean, we also we call it the song of our people, right? These guys are screaming and kicking with a lot of like actual energy coming. And that's something that you cannot replicate unless you actually live it, right? Unless you have that passion, you let it, you know, take take a part of you. And whenever you you have someone that can do that and they can help with the front and they can really put themselves out there, that gives you a leading edge. That's something that, you know, the dogs are better prepared to see what they're gonna see. Um, it happens a lot in the military. Like I've been uh, lucky enough to be able to train with some units in the military. And man, they're super guilty of that. These guys are out there wearing full camis and a chest and sleep, you know? And I'm like, what are you guys doing? You know, like there's no, but then if you see a special group, a special forces group training, they have guys pulling, like wearing full, you know, like uh, role playing uh, gear and they have everything because they understand that, right? So we, we, I feel like we should have to kind of close the gap on the training that's happening from the people that, that knows what's happening and that kind of teach that and pass it to the kind of, the people who are not doing it yet. And that's one of the things that a triple threat, you know, we're trying to do is kind of to bring that why and try to help that. But decoys are huge, man. That, that's kind of what really shows the real picture on the screen. Yeah, I, I think, you know, along of what Jay and Carlos both said, uh, I agree with everything that, that they're saying. I think the other aspect of it is that everyone that handles a dog that bites people should have some experience decoying, in my opinion. You yeah. don't have to be the decoy for your unit. You don't have to be the training decoy or have a, but if you have some experience in not just putting the suit on and taking a bite because you're the new guy, but mm -hmm. actual learn, like knowing of understanding of what's going on. Um, because there, there's also that decoy that's working your dog now. If you're on the other end of the leash, you can start to understand some things better, more accurately what's happening. You can make requests. Hey, I noticed when he did this and have those conversations that need to you know, need to happen between a handler and a decoy. If the handler is just a handler, there's not much that we could tell, like my dog do. We get, I get that question all the time. And like, I, I try my best to explain it to someone, but if they don't have an understanding, they, if you don't decoy and understand that, hey, it's not just your dog countered on a bite or punched in, so I reinforced him, and that's awesome. Like that's it's not just going through the motions. Like Carlos said, like you have to understand with these higher level dogs, these dogs that are on the road, you have to teach them what it's like to bite someone that's not afraid of you. Mm -hmm. Right. Teach them what it's like to bite someone that 
in their mind, they're going to kill you. They're going to kill that dog. That We have to teach dogs to be comfortable in that. And you can't just do that by going through the motions. Like you actually have to yeah. kind of get there mentally. You have to be like, when that dog comes to this door, I'm going to kill him. The hard part yeah. about it is that as being a professional decoy, you can't go overboard, right? You have to still, in the drop of a dime, be able to control. You have to go from, I'm the biggest monster in here, to you bit me or you did what I needed you to do. Now I'm the dying piece of prey. Right and bounce back and forth between that, um, and embody those emotions for real, real time feedback. Yeah, yeah. Like, talked about the biggest thing that like I've, I've we've implemented when it comes to like like you know, a lot of like the deep water work that we do is that in the beginning we you know when the dog comes in and you base it, it's like not a kind of like long sense. Like for me, the same thing. I want that fight right in front of me. I want to see exactly what you're going to bring to me as soon as you're in front of me. I want to see, especially when we go into that testing phase. So, you know, when a dog comes in, you know, they're five or six feet off of us and like immediately they go into like, let's say I'll put him onto a bicep, you know, I'll let him work out, I'll let him get a little tired. Then I start putting him on the ground, put him on their back. How do you respond to that? How do you respond to that dig? Are we going to be able to counter? How can I convey that I'm still combating you and I utilize jujitsu in this same fashion is that I'm still combating you. I'm still giving you, the, you know, this look like, oh shit, you're going to be in here. Like you're gonna be on, underneath on the bottom, like you're gonna actually fight. Okay, you counter, you show how to move out of that move. You show them how to, you know, use can uh, compliance to force them out of that. You give them that, those, you know, those looks of like, okay, cool, like I'm on top. Okay, no, I'm on bottom. You know, and then you start teaching them how to utilize those things and teach them that tactic, how to fight on their back. I mean, like I'll grab a, you know, I'll, I'll throw a dog between my legs, pull them underneath, and pull them on. I'll, I'll stand on top or lay on top of them for two and a half minutes. And they have to learn how to counter and get out and utilize the same right. Or you guys the same things and then teach the handler on the other side how to defend their dog, make sure their dog stays alive, you know, using that combative force to actually do those Absolutely. things. And then, you know, I'll fight a dog for 15, 17 minutes on one bite and we'll we'll work. You know, we'll this whole entire whole entire time, like we'll work. I'll put a dog down, like you know, we'll work the whole entire time, I'll work jujitsu with them, we'll put them through and be like I, I joked around on one of our last posts and be like Pretty sure I've effectively taught, especially during uh, shelter in place. I'm pretty sure I've effectively taught most of my dogs because they all learn how to counter certain sweeps. They all understand how to respond to someone trying to pin their head back. They understand how to cognitively through like actual like because you know I mean as we all know when we first have that level of aggression, you know when you start to fight, you know you have 30, 45 to a minute of where you maybe not be there. You're just running off adrenaline. You know, same thing with the dog. You know, they're running off that net initial press of adrenaline to fight. But what happens when the decoy is not yelling and screaming and just sitting there silently? Something else. Like, what happens if they just sit here and they're just smashing the fuck out of the dog for no reason? You know, because they just can't feel. So you have to teach the dog how to use muscle fiber and understand like what muscle fiber feels like, how it hurts, how it does, how to dig in and break bone and do all those other things. So me, I get very um, analytical <laughs> when it comes to how mm -hmm. the dog responds to certain uh, pressure points and how they continue to, to dig and break and make sure things that, you know, the, the person who, who is down to fight for 15, 17, 20 minutes, even longer, you know, give them that right fight and understand how to move their body uh, and, and during those situations. And it does, you know, I, and my opinion of you know, the decoy, like you know, what Jay was saying, you know, the decoy, especially when it comes to law enforcement, is 
I would say one of the most important factors, or if not the most important factor, because they're going to show them what they actually face in real life. Yep. Uh, Absolutely. That one percent case that you have the guy who's all, you know, jacked up and you know, not feeling shit and wanting to fight your dog. You have to show your dog how to fight. Yeah, and I think that's saying it. Katie said. Katie said in uh, here. and, and it goes along the lines of what everyone, like what we're talking about. But I agree with it fully. Like a decoy has to be comfortable with violence to teach a dog to be comfortable with violence, right? Like yeah. if, if the decoy has never been in confrontation before or had any type, like there's certain, there's just like the dogs, genetically, there's some things that have to be there and it's not just going through the motions, right? Um, Sorry, Jay, I'll cut you off there. What were you saying? No, so, no, what I was saying is you, you, you've said it, you said it probably 30 times in your little thing. You, you said the word fight. And that's my thing has always been, I, especially in our job, I need to teach that dog. Man work is not about biting. It's, it, 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 yes, it's about biting, but it's about fighting. I, it, that's more than just the dog biting. It's yeah. more than just the dog driving. It's just more than the dog just countering. It's, the dog needs to have a clear understanding of why we're countering. You know, we. My goal is to teach a dog to fight a man and fight with a genuine purpose, and I want that purpose to be to hurt as much as I possibly can. It's my job to control it from there. I tell people all the time, I'm like, well, why don't you guys have bloodhounds? Well, because our dogs, our German shepherds, they they track really well. Our mouths, they track really well. Well, aren't you worried? What about like, you know, old people, Alzheimer's patients or, you know, like kids? The truth of the matter is every time I put this dog on the ground, I want his mindset to be, I'm going to find the source of this odor that I'm following and I'm going to try to hurt it as bad as I can. Mm -hmm. If I put him on the ground to search for an Alzheimer's patient, I want his mindset to be, I'm going to try to hurt that Alzheimer's patient as much as I possibly can. If it's a seven-year-old lost kid, I want his brain to be thinking, when I find the source of this odor, I want to try to hurt it as much as I can. It's my job to prevent an Alzheimer's patient from getting bit. It's my job to prevent a seven-year-old from getting bit. It's not his job to decide at the end of the track how we should deal with this. I want his brain to, to understand that I'm using you for a purpose, and that purpose is pain compliance. If somebody first it's to locate, but if they don't cooperate, you get an opportunity. But if you make that choice, it's your choice. And we, I want him to bring the pain level so high. And even if they are screaming like their souls are exiting their bodies, right? I want his brain to constantly be thinking, I can do better, I can make them hurt even more. So it's training a dog to fight with a purpose. And getting out of this mindset of this routine, but it's mind blowing to me. You'll have a dog that's been working the street for, you know, five years, and you go to that unit's training day, and the first thing they'll do is break out a hidden, I mean, a, a, a barrel sleeve and go out on a field, and they'll just do routine bite work. That's that's never going to get your dog to wreck somebody's soul. Um, we, man, I, I don't know, man. I could get on a soapbox on this. You know, people say, oh, you can't, you can't bite them. You can't find them. That's true. But there's a lot of dogs out here that I promise you could find me and I could get them not to bite me. There's oh. no doubt in my mind. Oh, there sure. are a ton of dogs 
riding in the back of cop cars that the four of us sitting right here that I would be willing to take loads of money from people and guarantee you that I could get that dog not to bite me. I would say rescue dogs. Say that again, Mike. I would say come search and rescue dogs. Oh, both of us are talking. Yeah, they're both yeah. Mike. You're both Mike. You're both white Mike. Tell me what you just said. <laughs> That's bad. Who's <laughs> <laughs> going now, man? I don't know. Primal Mike. Primal Mike, you, you go first. What were you saying? I would say about 85% of dogs, especially out here, if you were to send them in uh, and I were, and you know, you send them in and I have no gloves, no nothing, like just come in, they, I would easily be easily able to put them out. But and on the vendor of where they come from, and there's a couple three letter vendors out here who <laughs> do the same thing. And <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that's the shitty part about it that most people don't understand is that like, and you know, when you deal with these quantities, you know, people who who are, and it's not their fault. I mean, they're just trying to fulfill, you know, they're just literally trying to fulfill things. Like they're just trying to get these, you know, EOD, they're trying to get homeless security, they're trying to get all these agencies, they're trying to fulfill all these quotas and it's not their fault in that sense because there's no real way to, like you, if you have a hundred dog kennel and you're doing only law enforcement, Unless you have a hundred, if not person, you know, staff, you're not gonna, you're not getting through those dogs. Exactly. Not proofing those dogs. No. Thing about like the decoy work, and I'll just say this before, like before we get into the rest of it, is that you know when we talk about like you know what uh, Jay was saying, you know, we're talking about someone screaming. For me, I use levels of like voice because I'm super monotone. Like the way that I expose my voice to show dogs to bite harder. So small screen, small yelps mean a, a bite. Bigger yelps mean a bigger bite. You know, something similar to my double clicker, single clicker system. Screams mean bite fucking harder every single time. So when they go into Absolutely. a it means they're breaking bones and that's what they, I want. I want if someone is incapacitated or on PCP or whatever they're going into with meth or whatever they're doing, they're making little noises to bite hard. I want them to, if they're screaming, I want them to bite harder. I want them to, you know, basically force compliance, essentially what we're doing. But, you know, that goes into the training aspect of things. And realistically, as, you know, the four of us on the board here, like right now, I mean, how many, how many decoys are down for that? Like, how many decoys are down to teach that? And where, a uh, set comp, you know, or comp. Or and I'll tell you, it's, it's even that. worse. It's even worse than law enforcement. Yeah, because. It, it's, it's so much worse than law enforcement because listen, guys don't get in to law enforcement canine to get bit. Nope. Yep. They, they get in law enforcement canine to bite people. Some of them get into it just to look cool. But it's, you know, every unit deals with that struggle. Like I've got a couple guys that, that will have no problem getting in a suit. And when they do it, they do it with heart and soul. And they do it knowing that they are providing genuine uh you know feedback to that dog and, and for a purpose um and then i've got other guys that'll do it yeah but they're gonna just gonna do it because they have to because part of their paycheck says they have to but you know carlos will tell you when i got this one and started training him i didn't let anybody take bites for him for a long time because yeah. i knew i wanted to create a soul crusher like i wanted people we joke all the time I wanted people when he bit them. I want them to, to literally rethink their entire 
life choice list. Like I want their, in that moment, I want them to just completely regret life choices. I think yeah. you accomplished that. <laughs> yeah. That dog has a reputation, but for sure. <laughs> There's another thing. So let's break these down for a second. Think about it. Who is a good candidate to be a decoy? Let's just, feel, let's just put it that way. Break down what are the qualifications needed. Stupid enough to be okay with pain and actually enjoy it, right? And, then, and until you don't get fairly good, you cannot really make enough money to justify the pain and how you get hurt. So you, it's not really for the money. It's not really for the money. Then you have to be athletic enough to be able to do it for long periods of time. It's not just to go in there two seconds in and then just tapping out like, hey, sub, you know, like I need to come up. No, that's none of that. You have to be athletic. And then you also have to have the knowledge of when to be, when to, sorry, you need to be strong enough to know to teach a dog what an opponent looks like. But then you have to find that magic tough guy that actually knows when to become weak and do it on command and just flip the switch. So when you put all those qualifications together, man, it's not that many people that can check all those boxes, you know? And then you add the part that this is for the dog, not for you. So the people that start doing it because they cannot be popular and they want to be famous, you're already doing it for the wrong thing. This is about the dog. This is about how tough the dog is, not how tough you are. We're actually the one that learns to be weak on command. That's really what decoy is. So when you put all those things together, it's hard to find somebody that, that checks all of those boxes and that does it with passion. That when these guys call you after working a full day of training your pets and they call you at midnight, hey, what are you doing? You want to come get bit? Yeah, dude, let's go. You know what I mean? Just run out there <laughs> and get stitches to put on you, which his dog has done a million times. Like, my wife gets mad every time he calls me. It's like, hey, you want to go get bit? I'm like, yeah. My wife is like, no. Why? The famous line is for fuck's sake. Guaranteed. So, pairing on to what um, Carlos was saying, this is one of the most important things that I preach to all of my decoys, and like this is super important. Is and I come from a fighting background, so you have to be a good sparring partner. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're mm -hmm. training, you need to go into a fight. When you're training, I, I mean, all the times I've trained to go into a fight. Whenever every time I've trained someone to go into a fight, you know, and when we're boxing as far as whatever we're doing, is that you're a booster. You know, you're teaching them, you're showing them the looks, you're showing them the pictures, you're giving them a little bit of adversity but you're always letting them win to build that ego. So when they're ready to go, they go. Uh, yeah. And understanding that, especially when you go into certain levels of stress and you know, when a dog's fucking biting you and you have, which is the reason why we created the gauntlets that we have. And I actually have some stuff I'm sending to you guys from Ray Allen. Um, you know, when you you know have a you know semi-comp sleeve on, when you have a semi-comp suit on, when you have a comp suit on, you have the dog biting you, you have to be able to convey the proper message and understand that you know you're there for one to bring the pressure to show them it, but also let them win to understand that they can over they can accomplish it. The whatever the goal is at that point, which is to take you out. So you got to give them the good pictures. You have to be the great sparring partner. You have to be the one that's going to show them the pressure, show them the looks, show them what the technique is, show them how to overcome that, show them the technique after that, and then build them up to where they win eventually. But it does take a specific quality in the person to adapt to the pressure adapt to the pain and be able to technically move through that significant way of thinking you know and that comes into like if you talk about like you know jujitsu or anything like that any combat sport people who are adapted to those things who understand what it looks like to one you're about to be choked the fuck out to now you're on top you're rolling over learning how to uh, learn your moves and go from there 
So I always adapt that to, you know, in dog training, especially when it comes to protection work or just, I mean, even when it comes to sport or just law enforcement, you know, keeping, taking those dogs into that deep water aspect where they start to think clearly and we're adapting them, you know, into like, okay, this is actual actions of fighting. And this, uh, one thing I was going to bring up to you guys too is that, you know, uh, so everyone they talk about, you know, everyone talks about trade drive, defensive drive, you know, and people talk about fight drive. I don't believe there's a fight drive. I believe you teach dogs how to fight. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I was hoping the word drive. drive would not come into play, but there it is. <laughs> overdrive, fight drive. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I, I, I agree. I think that's something that is built in. Like, we build, we teach them how to fight. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think that there's a sometimes a misconception of a dog to, um, like, a resistance to coercion. Right, uh, like a dog that you tell him, no, you're not gonna bite me, and he tells you, no, fuck you, yes, I am. Um, versus a dog that just says, like, oh, I just want to go fight him and him and him. You know, like there's a difference to that. Um, and I think a lot of people also get so hang on terms. Call it whatever you want, whatever makes the dog bite harder. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not I'm a reason to begin with. I don't even know English that well to begin with. So. <laughs> Call it cheeseburger, dog. Call it whatever you want. Yeah. Dog gonna bite harder? Is a dog gonna do what we need on the street? Not in training. It, whatever we're doing, the drive mentality, like whatever you want to call it, it kind of dog achieve it on the street in real work. Then that good. We're tapping into the right aspect of the mentality in by work, right? So that's what I think. But so many people want to measure who knows more than who. Uh, and just try to throw a, a terminology like, dude, it, we're, there's a lot of foreigners here, man. That's not fair. I cannot start in the same playing field. I don't know how the words. <laughs> we speak a different English in Canada. Better English than I do, and I am from um, I'm from California. Speak <laughs> <laughs> a different English. Okay, you know, on the planet, you can explain things like direct as far as that's what I was like. Besides, Damon Kitty, I'm like, he was like, Jesus Christ, man. I was like, I. I you know, and Katie's in Florida with you guys, and like Nesbitt's in Canada. I'm like, he was like, well, talking to you guys, I feel like I'm extremely simple, so that's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, a, there's a skill in being able to explain things like very, yeah. you know, cut and high. You know, that, that, that's a skill within itself. And it, it, especially, I find, especially with dealing with law enforcement, like you got, yeah. you got so, so long that you have that attention captured and you got to yeah. get it out make yeah. it simple and straight to the point right we yeah. can on these yeah. you know this kind of forum we can sit here and and talk back and forth for however long right and, and take our time with explaining things and jumping from but like when we're real time there it's like hey spit it yeah. out and yeah straight a to lot it. of these guys are pick things up put things down boys and you have got to break <laughs> it down very simple for them Wait, i'm telling you i've got a, I've, yeah. I've got a couple of my unit that are just Pick shit up, put it down. That's it. Like that's that's their role, man. Like we've been, you know, like, we've been about to start a seminar, and Jay gets a call from one of the guy's sergeants. Hey, man, I just want you to know this is not the sharpest tool in my shit in the unit. I just want to get <laughs> please don't judge the entire unit because like, we get those. Calls. So you need to, oh, yeah. to 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 explain things to everyone, and yeah. that's that's difficult because everybody also has a different relationship with canine. Like we talked earlier, some people are all about it and they're a sponge, and some people are meant to be there. Like somebody Absolutely. forced, them, they don't even care to be there. But 
for me at least, I want to help them too. They don't know they need the help, but I do. You're screwed. You think you know a lot, but I know you don't. So that's my challenge, reaching that guy. I want the guy mm -hmm. that up like whatever, I don't care about this, to leave like, whoa, you just opened my eyes, man. Like this is insane. Absolutely. We're trying to reach. The guy who comes mm -hmm. out oh, waiting to learn, man, he will learn from looking at us on Instagram. He's the one that is kind of like, eh, I don't know about this. That's why we're so big on the why. When I leave, you're going to understand why. And you're going to be like, why haven't I been doing this the entire time? And yeah. that's a big, a big magic trick, I think. You know, it's a big secret to that part, to be able to reach the person that doesn't want to be reached. Definitely. So, before we get into questions here. So, I get this question quite a bit. Uh, and this is something, like, I, I mean, on my Instagram a lot. Uh, a lot of it is, you know, why... So for me, I, I have this thing. We, I, I, I just named it to name it. Like you said, Carlos, like just fucking put a word on it for what it is. But we do this thing called like you know like deep water work, which I usually use uh, high interval in a in a interval training uh, when I do my bite work. So you know the dog comes on the bite, and then I switch up pressure, passive pressure, passive, on the ground doing these things, going from there. But it, it lasts for longer, it's a long, length of roughly. Know, 16 17 minutes in one bike uh, and a lot of people ask me you know, consistently like you know why do you why do you bike for long bikes um why why does the dog like why are you going on the dog with one bike for you know that long uh, and for me i always kind of tell people the same reason why we talked about it in the beginning was that you know ideally it's like you know the first part of the bite the dog has all this adrenaline all this fight all this you know aggression coming forward um, but they're not really thinking as far as the technical ability when it comes to the actual fight of the bite, like what movements are going through, how to move through those movements and thinking in clarity, and, you know, not necessarily just staying and drive, but actually thinking in clarity and learning how to fight. Um, you know, what is the, what is the thought process on that? Because I want to talk to you guys, I know, I know you guys all be pointing, you guys working with the law enforcement, and like that's the same thing I teach, you know, all the agencies of dogs I work with. So what is the thought process in that? Like for you guys, do you guys have to, I guess, apply long biting in there? Is that something you guys do or is that just something that? Yeah, yeah for sure. For sure. I think that it's, and I'll let Carlos and Mike touch on this a little bit more, but I'll, I'll tell you from my perspective, I think those long bites come in helping the dog to bite with clarity, you know, versus coming in, wham, and they're just, you know, being violent, which like I'm all about the violence, but I also need you to, to do it with clarity. And I think that's where those long bites tend to bring that clarity to the game. So when they're, even when they're super tired, they are, um, they're, they're, they're fighting, you know, it's no different than us. You know I mean? Uh, Katie said something a minute ago about, you know, decoys that are out here trying to teach dogs to fight and they don't even know how to fight themselves. You know, we as grown men, like you said, growing up in a, from in a fighting background, you know, that fighting smart is super, super important. And fighting with clarity is what keeps you from getting your head smashed in. And it's no different on our end. You know, I want my dog, and me and my dog both, individually and as a team, have to fight together with clarity so that we can win this fight every time. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I think so. Along with, like, touching on that clarity point, you know, giving those long bites um, helps with the clarity. I think one of the reasons I think it helps with the clarity is because like you get your dog also gets those drives satisfied, right? Like he gets to have that, that outlet, like, Oh, we, you know, if we have the right dogs, this is what they want to do. So when we say, 
you know, when we usually or traditionally, you know, they get a 10 second bite and then they, they take them off the bite and that's all they get. And they're only getting these little bites in training and then on the road, it, it all, we're just building more. Like you're just adding more flame to the fire. Like let them get that out of their system. Let them get it out there. Let them be able to think. The, the other thing that comes with it is now that type of pressure that we can put on a dog in a long bite uh, or a, like a longer duration of, of biting time, um, it is different. Like there, there, I think that it's a lot harder on dogs to have like that slow type of mental pressure that they really have to think about. Right. Where versus like if a dog's so hectic and I can shake a can curtain and, and like do a drive with it that, that, like a sport kind of drive like yeah it's a type of pressure but i think it's much more pressure slowly hold my hand up like i'm gonna punch the shit out of this dog and he has to really look at my fist or my open hand while it's above his head and i'm slowly lifting it like there's so much more processing that that dog has to do in that moment of like oh this guy's really crazy he's really gonna slap me or i'll slowly take my arm and reach and slowly grab their flank instead of just like trying to sneak a flank grabbing does that make sense yeah like, and we have that much time make sure the dog's noticing what I'm doing. Hey, motherfucker, this hand is coming down and I'm going to slap you. And if he decides to punch, my hand can go away. Right? Exactly. So we make him think through these these actions. Think through it. Like, hey, okay, I'm doing I've seen dogs that have been able to handle like traditional type pressures that they'll go in a room and someone will fight with them and yell and bang all these bottles and rock jugs all around. And the dog will perform, but you send that same dog in, and now we do this slow kind of hey, see this hand? This is the creepy hand that's going to come and grab you on your flank, and all of a sudden the dog's like, oh my gosh, like it's too much for him, right? Um, so it, it gives us the ability to put that other type of pressure on dogs, and I think that also is super super important. Adding that, uh, tapping on what Michael just said, I'm adding that other pressure. Like I, I also come from sort of a fighting background. I like to practice jiu so I don't get to do it as much as I'd like to, but. Um, there's a there's a there's a fighter on second five of the fight, and there's a fighter on second on the third minute and forty fifth second of the fight. Right? It's, you're fighting two different opponents at that moment. So I don't want to just work the dog on his prime. I want that dog to still fight when he thinks he cannot punch one more time. Right? When he's exhausted. When me hitting him means ten times more than when he first got hit. Because the same with me. In, in the first minute of my jiu-jitsu, somebody puts me in a chokehold, I'm going to push through it. Like, I don't care. But when I'm gasping for air, when I have 10 seconds left, I'm way more likely to tap at that point because I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I have tried things that maybe worked or didn't work. So you have to get the dog to that point, right? So there's the mentality aspect of it. The dog's super tired, and now he's not going to tolerate as much. And then there's the other aspect of just physical fitness. Just like me, I'm an athlete. I come from a athletic background. I know that Michael does as well. And when we, if you if you fight for a four minute round, you're gonna try and six, seven minute rounds, right? Because you wanna be ready for that three, four minute fight. So it's the same with the dog. Like Jeremy knows, we put this dog sometimes 20 minutes on the fight, 25 minutes straight. Mm -hmm. And the dogs are gassed. I'm dying. Like I'm about to die. And now comes the handler. That's when it all started because the handler just got there. But guess what happens when we're here in Florida and these guys go in the woods, they have to track the dogs for a long time. The fight goes on forever. And then it's just the handler and the guy alone in the woods. Sometimes the fight, the fight has to go on even longer. Like, Mark, uh, like Jeremy said, here, they don't take the dog off until the guy's handcuffed. 
sometimes you can't handcuff until you have other people there. So the dog is in a fight for a long time. So if you don't practice that, the dog is gonna start flaking and weakening and weakening in the street. Versus, I want my dog when he first bite. He's like, all right, buddy, are you get ready because we're gonna be here for a while and they're ready for it. To the point that if you choke them out or you try to out them right away, they're like, what's going on? But we're not done yet. And that taps into what Michael said, satisfying those needs. I guarantee you, 90% of the dogs that have outing problems, they work like two minute sessions, three minute sessions. And that's it. Because that, that's, that's that long. That might yeah. be long. It doesn't be too long. Yeah, I would say it's probably less than that. Exactly. So you're, you're working with a dog that just got there, like he said. This is what they bred and chosen for. They want to do it. Their drives are telling them, go do it. And now you were like, no, whatever. Like, I always compare it to, like, I love supercars. I would love to own a Lamborghini, right? And I would love to work for one. And if I have to work for a whole year, I'm, I'm broke. So I can only buy a two-hour race. I can only rent one for two hours at a speed track, right? If I get on that car after saving for a year and after I jump on the steering wheel, after the first lap, you're like, no, get out. I'm going to be like, fuck you. I'm not getting out. I've been waiting for a whole year. I'm going to burn this sucker up for the next two hours. But if you let me ride it to the point that my butt hurts, my ears are sore, and then my friend comes over and tells me, hey, bud, do you mind if I take it for a spin? I'll gladly get out of the car. But I satisfy my needs, right? So it's the same with the dogs. Let him do what he came here for. Do it for a while, and when he's so tired that Audi might be a good choice, present, present him with the option. But so many things worked out at first. And last, it's called damn bite work. Go get bit. What are you doing? Just get bit for a long time. That's a bite work. We're decoys, right? We get bit. Put a dog in your arm and let him bite you, period. Go do that for a long time. It's that serious. It's that simple. I mean, that's uh, I think, Carlos, you brought up a great point. Is that you know this is something I've said and we had a couple minutes before I got to get off here so I'm gonna rush through it. Um, so fatigue makes cowards of all men and dogs, and that's obviously when you know a dog can either continue or not continue depending on what level you brought him into and what level of deep water you brought him into and what position you brought him into, and all of those things. So man, I think like that's one of the great standpoints and like things to think about too because. You know, a lot of sports, especially when you come to like levels of qualification, are based on outing, based on time limits, based on things. But in reality, when you deal with a great decoy or a great company like you know Triple Threat, you know they're going to put your dog into that point where you know they're going to have to think. It's about learning how to fight. It's about learning how to do these things and learning how to you know do these movements and all that stuff. Um, but before we um, get off of here, because we're about to end here in a minute. Uh, I want to thank you guys greatly for being on here. Uh, we're going to check back in here in a minute um, offline. You guys will be able to see all this fun stuff. Um, but uh, hey, I appreciate you guys for being on here. Thank you for everything you guys do. Uh, and, and again, you know, if you guys can't, or you guys who are following this, the 475 people who were on this thing here in general, um, you know, make sure you follow the Triple Threat crew. Um, all these guys are dope. All these guys are amazing. As you guys know, Nesbeth is one of the main instructors of uh, PCU. So make sure you guys are always following in and checking on those things and appreciate you guys, man. And, you know, thanks again. Let's cheer, let's cheer you guys before we log off here. Thanks. Hey, hey, Mike, Mike, when this is all, when this COVID stuff's all done, we got to come out to California and come see Dude, you. Yes. asking for forever. <laughs> I think I asked, asked Nesbeth, like, I don't even know. Uh, 
mid, like, I don't want to even say it was probably like January, July this time. Come down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. already. Well, I'd love to. But we'll get that in, guys, and then I will hit you guys offline here in a minute. But thanks, everyone, for uh, tuning in, and then I'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you for having us, man. All right, thanks, so buddy. Good.